Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Heather McGee is one of the most brilliant young policy minds in progressive politics. As the president of Demos, she is a recognized expert on the burdens of debt and approaches to dealing with it, and uh, has written on inequality and a range of other societal challenges. Heather just finished a stint as a fellow at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, where we sat down to have this conversation about where we are in America and where we're going. Heather McGee, welcome. Welcome, first of all, uh, thank you for being at the Institute of Politics, for being a fellow here uh, this quarter. You've been a great presence around here. It has been so great, David. Just a phenomenal program you have here. Um, I, I joke that if I'd had this program when I was an undergrad, um, you know, I probably would have run for office already and, you know, have, <laughs> have my ducks all in a row. It's, well, we it's gotta incredible. Get, we'll get to all of that because <laughs> uh, we, we got to know where this is all going. But... Uh, I, I didn't realize that this was a homecoming for you, yeah. coming back to the south side of Chicago. Yeah. You 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 grew up here. I was born on the south side of Chicago. Whereabouts? Um, when I was born, the apartment we lived in was an apartment building that my great-grandmother owned that I recently found out she had bought on a contract loan, which is mm. those terrible predatory loans where that were sold to black people before... Um, we could get traditional mortgages where you just paid and paid and paid. And if you missed a payment, you just lost the whole uh, property. So um, she must have paid. She must have paid. She was a domestic mm-hmm. and she ran the numbers. And somehow it all worked out. How'd um, your family, where'd they, did they come from the South? Yes, both on both sides. My mother's side and my father's side both came up from the South. When? Um, uh, great migration. Yeah, totally mm-hmm. a great migration story. My my mother's family came from Alabama to Cleveland and Chicago. My father's family came from Mississippi and Louisiana to Chicago. Um, and, you know, I grew up in, in Southside in the 1980s, which was very, um, it was a very thick kind of black middle class, working middle class community where it really felt like, you know, everybody was in some role that was somehow you know, trying to turn the wheels of progress forward. You know, my actually my my grandfather was a, a police officer in internal affairs mm. in in the Chicago PD in the sixties, if you can imagine that That's in the seventies. Um, uh, my grandmother was a social worker. Um, my mother was a holistic health practitioner who worked in the p- public housing in this um, in in on the south side and the west side. So I, I grew up with it in my bones. I remember there's a. Uh, a picture of Harold Washington in your office. Yes. And I remember um, having a 
his headshot. My mom gave it to me when he was elected, and it was in my bedroom, and I remember looking at it and crying when I found out he died. Yeah. It's a very vivid that, early that was a That was a cataclysmic event for yeah. the city because there had been all this racial tumult yeah. after he got elected in 1983 called Council Wars here where the you know, in certain ways, it was a pre- uh, you know predecessor event to some of the things we saw when Barack Obama got elected president. But the city council organized itself into a white uh, into a white cohort that tried to block the things that Washington wanted to do. And he finally, in 1987, uh, he won re-election, and it was pretty much ign- he had control of the city council and. There was an acceptance in the city, and it, it was so promising. Mm-hmm. And then, the, you know, six months later, he collapses at his desk and dies. And I remember the uh, his funeral. I don't know if you you, you were young, so young, but uh, uh, it was amazing how many people came to City Hall uh, to see his body lying in state. And it was not just black people coming mm-hmm. it was people from all around people had embraced him as kind of the uh, the the father figure of the city right. uh, and so you know it was sad and of course it plunged chicago into uh several years of racial uh, strife. So your dad and your parents split up. You basically were raised by a single mother. I was. I mean, my you know they had shared custody, and you know I did every other weekend and every other, um, you know every other Wednesday and every other weekend with my dad. Um, but you know the identity of single mother was something that my my mom very much identified with, and she was you know she was the breadwinner. She was um, the person who had uh, you know my brother and me, you know, most of the time. And it was also a period of time where black single mothers were being vilified. So there was a, a lot of conversation around our kitchen table um, about, you know, the sort of role of the single mother, right? She was also um, doing work with a lot of single mothers in public housing and in early childhood education. Um, and we were a very politically active household. And I just remember hearing the sort of discourse about, you know, the reason why, you know, we need to reform welfare or the reason why, you know, um, the economy is not working the way it should is because of, you know, single moms and the sort of decline of the black family and all of that. And I just couldn't square the kind of welfare queen image that was in the media and that my mother would reference with, you know, the black women I knew working two and three jobs, you know, making a way out of no way. Um, It just, it didn't square. And it was sort of the first kind of unjust economic storytelling that I ever heard. And it stuck with me for a really long time. And sort of Mm -hmm. punching through those economic myths um, has been a really important part of my career ever since. Now, your dad moved to California? Yes, he now lives in Sacramento. um, my dad got remarried, and um, uh, he now lives in Sacramento. But we're still very close. Um, yeah. And your dad married a, a, a white woman. Yes, yes. Where are you finding this information? <laughs> this is great. Um, my, um, so my dad married um, this wonderful woman named Mary Boyven, um, now McGee, when I was six. And so my parents split up when I was two. So, you know, I went from having this, you know, pretty all-black life, um, you know, in the sort of first half of my childhood, um, to suddenly having this white extended family. Um, and I loved my stepmother and my stepmother loved me and it was a very positive relationship. And she, um, she's one of nine children 
who were part of this social justice movement in the 60s and 70s that moved to the this white, you know, nine children family to the West Side after the King riots. And, um, you know, it's just one of those only in Chicago stories of, you know, this white family kind of um, becoming a, a, you know, doing she was of, from Chicago, she was from Chicago, yeah. mm-hmm. um, very Catholic social justice yeah. type of orientation. Um, and so I got to know this white family very young. Um, and I do think that, you know, shaped my kind of ambition for what I thought, you know, the relationship I thought black and white people could have, um, which is not something that the city of Chicago taught me about by any yeah. means, right? Not something the school system taught me about, right? My very segregated system, school where, system. Where, where you were in the public schools? I was in the public schools um, after... Um, Fourth grade, uh, my mom moved to Evanston. We left the South Side for me to get a better education. Um, and uh, and then when I was in junior high, um, I went away to boarding school, which was a really like completely unheard of thing for so someone Milton, to do Milton from Chicago. Milton Academy in Massachusetts. Yes, I went to a smaller boarding school for junior high, and then went on to Milton Academy in Massachusetts, where um, uh, where among other people, another famous Southsider, Deval Patrick. Uh, yes, another famous. Yes, a yeah. much more famous Southsider, Deval <laughs> Patrick went. Um, you know, and there I went. I had learned about the East Coast, right, and and New England, and families with you know big names and. Um, uh, you know, just a very different world than the one I had grown up on. In I want to I want to return to your 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 father's wife and and mm-hmm. your family, and you said that it 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 gave you ambition for mm. what the relationship between uh, white and black people uh, could be. Talk mm. talk a little bit about that. I you know I'm I'm anguished all the time about the how much in a lot of different ways we in this country talk past each other how you know you talk about the sort of the the caricatures and the stories the false narratives and so on and they're false narratives that run in all kinds of different directions um and penetrating them is such a is such a challenge you know especially in in this era so um talk about about that and how that impacted on you you know, I I've only recently started to make sense of it and and sort of re retell the story of my life to myself, um, where the role of of Mary, my my white stepmother, you know, was was important um, in that way in my sort of history of racial thinking. Right, um, I think that it was easy in some ways because it was a child relationship, right? I was a child. And though we know, you know, the the research tells us that children, you know, as young as five and six years old already have sort of racial stereotypes. You know, they're already so exposed to them that they start to, to mimic them. It's also easier to create a relationship, um, you know, when you're young. And then, yeah. you know, I, I had my stepmother and all of her, her brothers and sisters and these aunts and uncles and I had white cousins, you know. Um, but then I also, when I was just 11, was at that first boarding school in junior high. And so I was roommates with um, people who were Where was not that? black. That was in the western part of Massachusetts, a tiny school called Bement. Um, mm-hmm. So one of how my roommates was Puerto Rican, one you, was how Chinese. How did you end up there? Um, it's a very strange story. I think my mom was... Um, 
I think she was kind of desperate to, she was a single mom who was a workaholic um, and still is to this day. So she was, you know, taking, she was traveling like I travel, right? She was going, you know, three different planes a week and it just wasn't working out in terms of having someone sort of be there for me day in and day out. And I was also a precocious kid and she really was looking for an educational sort of solution, right? I mean, as all parents are. And I think she was on a nonprofit board meeting with this white woman who was like, you know, there's such a thing as boarding school, which is just totally not on the radar, you know, of a, you know, of black families in the Midwest in generally speaking, you know, and um, and that woman sort of demystified it for her, and and it seemed like the perfect solution. It would be a really great private school, and I would you know be taken care of twenty four seven. And ended up being a wonderful experience for me. Yeah, uh, you know, Duval talks about um, having he was part of a program in the Chicago public schools, and a teacher saw in him this great promise, and. Uh, and nominated him essentially for one of these scholarships that sent him to from the south side of Chicago to Milton Academy mm-hmm. tells these really moving stories about making that adjustment yeah. showing up with a windbreaker on in class because they told me he had a they told his grandmother he had to wear a jacket That's right, and right. he didn't know what that meant but yeah. but um you know it does raise a question obviously your mother felt in addition to her own scheduling issues, that the sc- the Chicago schools were not yeah. adequate uh, to to her, and you know, you were blessed with a parent who had the resources to find alternatives. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I worry worry for the kids who don't have that. I mean, I I think you know, my mom worked her tail off and was entrepreneurial, always in the social justice space, right? Always about public health and community health. And, and um, um, she created a, a um, she co-created a uh, multicultural education program that trained teachers in how to teach about America's diverse history in the 1980s. And she would fly around the country, you know, um, training teachers on this and selling this curriculum, mm. right? I mean, she was just... Totally Amazing. ahead of her time. Yeah, no kidding. Um, but, um, you know, she, it was, you know, every dime she made was going to go to her children, right? That was very clear. Um, and it was always clear that you just had to spend your time trying to make the country and your community better. I mean, mm-hmm. that was just, I, I never really seriously entertained, you know, anything else. And so, any conversation about the educational opportunities that I had was always against the background backdrop of trying to make schools better and fairer for everyone. Um, yeah, that was just part of the discourse. What talk about just um, put your your policy hat on? Because mm-hmm. uh, I know how deeply you're uh, how deeply you're interested in and working on these great disparities. Um, so back to the child who didn't have the parent who had the resources mm-hmm. to to find them. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- what happens to that child? Well, you know, I'm I spent most of my career working at the think tank Demos, yes. um, where the the goal is to create an America where we all have an equal chance in our economy and yes. an equal say in our democracy. So. 
inequality, the inequalities of opportunity, of outcome, of wealth, of um, education, of health, you know, are that's the, the defining rubric for the way I think about the world. And, um, you know, government has a really strong role to play in creating opportunity. It does in invisible ways very often. Um, you know, the fact that there is a, a tax policy that allows for um, you know, the wealth of a community to be cordoned off um, and fund its own schools when, you know, people two blocks away um, are being shortchanged and having um, what was recently calculated as, you know, white students have $23 billion more um, in educational funding than than black, you know, and people of color majority school districts. Um, those kinds of invisible policy levers are the things that shape what you know we knew growing up is just they're good neighborhoods and bad neighborhoods you know good schools and bad schools and 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 it's been my goal to not only you know gain the knowledge to be able to see where those levers are and and gain the power to be able to change them but also to be able to pull back the curtain for everyday people and reveal how the things we take as common sense are really about public policy choices. And in a democracy, we can make different choices. Mm-hmm. And um, wh- what about charter schools, uh, which has been obviously a very uh, hot debate? Yeah. Uh, and the, uh, you know, as an option for parents who can't send their kids to Milton Academy, or do you <laughs> feel that that, um, that, that that just further depletes uh, neighborhood schools and pub- public schools? Yeah, well, I mean, K-12 through education has not actually been um, an area where I've, you know, done a lot of policy advocacy. Um, I'll just say that from the outset. Um, I've been more focused on the funding of public higher education and... And, and debt. And debt. Yes. Um, but, you know, I do believe that it we need to... Re- re-equalize um, the local uh, and state funding of public K-12 through education so that your zip code does not determine um, how much educational resources poured into you um, by, by your neighbors and, and your family. Um, and I do think that for-profit charter schools are, you know, I've seen them over the course of my lifetime become a way for wealthy people to to tap into what is, you know, a massive uh, spigot of public funding. Um, and I'm very cynical about them. And I also see that, you know, the data is out that charter schools are not better just because there's something someone can opt into in a way that a neighborhood school isn't. Um, you know, you're not necessarily getting better outcomes. Some are, presumably, and some right, aren't. Right, some are and some aren't. But it's not, um, it's not the answer, right? I think in many ways we've been trying to find an answer to get away from the public school, to close the public school, to, you know, to, to charter out of the public school. And, um, you know, for me, I think you know, the the disinvestment, the disengagement from not just public schools, but the public period that has happened over my lifetime. I was born in 1980. You know, I think it started um, under Nixon, but really accelerated under Reagan has been one of the saddest parts of American politics and American policymaking. 
And the book I'm writing right now uh, about the costs of racism to us all, um, really, you know, one of the chapters is about how racism starves the public, how um, you have a very close correlation between um, a community becoming more diverse, um, whether it's, you know, in the 19, late 1950s and 1960s when um, what was a segregated town or community or public resource then, you know, is forced to integrate. And then you saw in towns across the country, not just in the American South, towns deciding to close their public pools, their public parks, their public schools, white parents, you know, pulling out of public um, infrastructure and public schools, you know, the growth of private private schools and, and segregation academies and parochial schools. And, and ultimately, I think everybody loses out. Um, white children lose out from the the gift and the um, the resource that is you know learning in a diverse environment. Um, white student, white parents have to pay a lot of money to you know to avoid what is public, um, and and of course you know students of color who are left behind um, are are not invested in in the way that they would have been had you know the the commons remained kind of a whites only space. So I I think as I started out as an economic policy person. Um, you know, those questions I talked about in terms of my childhood, the kind of big economic story that was happening, um, you know, in our politics, which was really scapegoating, I think, mm-hmm. um, single moms, um, where the the real economic story that was happening in, in, in my backyard was the closing of the factories and you right. know, the incredible uh, economic dislocation. This was how Barack Obama came to Chicago, right in the, you were three, I think, when he <laughs> arrived here, uh, to work uh, in the shadow of those closed yeah. steel mills, which yeah. uh, had such a devastating effect on the communities around it. That's right. And uh, particularly on the South Side. That's yeah. right. And I mean, that deindustrialization, um, you know, which was followed by, you know, the growth in, in crime and uh, loss in public you know, public sector resources, which then hit, you know, sort of the other half of families that are often, um, you know, you'd often have like a, a man working in the steel mills and a and uh, a woman working in, uh, you know, in the public sector in some way. And, you know, it was sort of this, this one-two punch. You know, that's the economic problem that I kind of started out in my career to solve, which was why is it so hard for, for working families to get ahead? And And David, I will say that over the course of, the 10 years, the first 10 years of really working at a, a class organization, right? My organization was founded by a handful of white men. It was 75% white when I became president of Demos. Um, and, you know, the goal was to address inequality. And race was a sort of accelerant of inequality, right? There's a disparities when you talk about inequality. But what I discovered over the years was that Race wasn't just an accelerant of inequality, it was a driver of inequality. Mm-hmm. And so many of the stories of of just bad economic policymaking and self-sabotaging economic policymaking and predatory economic policymaking, exploitative, were really driven by... Um, by, you know, racist racial, attitudes. Racial animus. Yeah. You know, Brian Stevenson was here last year and um, was very moving mm. and really challenged uh, the audience, as he does everywhere he goes, um, to really confront the legacy of race mm-hmm. in this country, which is, of course, his his mission. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, uh, to me, you know, and I've 
consider myself pretty thoughtful on these issues, and mm-hmm. I work, you know, for a, a lot of groundbreaking leaders who people of color and and uh, but the um, but just focusing on the the legacy of essentially abducting millions of people, bringing them to this country, enslaving them, mm-hmm. and all the ensuing developments, the compounding uh, of it. Mm-hmm. How, do we, uh, how do we confront that legacy, and how do we have a conversation about it that doesn't become, you know, you talk about trying to find paths for people to have these conversations. How do we have this conversation, particularly in an environment where now, you know, the plants did, the plants have closed in a lot of different places. You've oh, got yeah. you've got a bunch of uh, people who are white who are uh, who've been displaced in this economy, mm-hmm. opioid addicted, yeah. uh, depressed, and don't feel privileged. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and so you know, uh, the, the concept of white privilege is an mm-hmm. inflammatory concept. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. E- you know, even though you can make a strong case for mm-hmm. what it means. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think part of the problem is that we approach. Um, we have the American mindset is often falls into a zero sum trap where progress for one group is coming at the expense of the other. And that's because that was the way a brutally enforced racial hierarchy would have it be. People, you know, become the wealth of a nation, right? Um, That's pretty zero sum. But that's not where we are anymore. And yet we still have this zero sum mindset. And so um, I do believe that when we talk about, there's been a vested interest on a personal level, on a political level, to just diminish the role of slavery, of Jim Crow, of redlining, of mass incarceration in shaping the America that we know today. You know, not to mention the near genocide of indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, the list could go on. Um, And so I think first we need to recognize that we can't move forward while still telling ourselves lies about who we are and what we've done. It means that we'll always be locked in this fight about what the truth is instead of, you know, joining arms and rolling our sleeves up and having some American sense of pride about moving past it, right? I mean, we could actually say, and not in a way that feels hollow, but really atones and is true about what we've done, um, yeah, that, and Stevenson points out as the Germans did exactly, about the Holocaust. Exactly. Um, so I, I fundamentally believe that, um, and I think you're sort of alluding to what you know. What could the reparations conversation be? First, it needs to be a truth commission, right? First, we really need to get closer to a common narrative, and I think that's really hard right now because we have a sort of racial resentment for profit factory uh, in conservative media, conservative corporate media. Um, you know, which will try to fight tooth and nail as they do every time. You know, I remember when Michelle Obama said, 
you know, that, you know, she was living in a house built by slaves, like, you know, the right wing media went crazy. Mm-hmm. Right? Bill O'Reilly was on talking about how slaves had potatoes. I mean, it just it was like, you know, just it it makes it makes um, there's such an investment in denialism um, that it's hard to get to a common place. But I don't think it's impossible. I think Americans put a man on the moon and invented the light bulb and the solar panel and the combustion engine and we could do, yeah, but we I mean, could that, do these those things. Those things are, of course, different uh, because they don't. Uh, they don't involve, hum, you know, the emotional components uh, that this discussion yeah. has. So, just returning to the point uh, before that I asked before, mm-hmm. how, how do you have this discussion, yeah. and and can you have this discussion yeah. with people who say, "I'm I'm kind of flat on my back yeah. here," I don't, and so. You know, I mean, I, I, we faced this. I mean, whenever I was in campaigns, yeah. uh, particularly late, later in the later years, people who felt like, uh, you know, white working class people felt like the, the wealthy got bailouts. Mm-hmm. Uh, poor people got uh, uh, what they would call handouts. Mm-hmm. And that they were that 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 you talk about narratives. That's, yeah. That was the narrative. Yeah. And we're we're in the mill now, notwithstanding the fact that many of them were using food uh, you know we're, we're mm-hmm. availing themselves of food stamps and other things so uh i mean this is what i'm yeah because because these the, you know the what, yeah what donald trump has done is he has he has weaponized this yep. in a really big way uh that sense of lo- loss that sense of yeah. uh, you know resentment yeah. and so on well we at demos and demos action our um, political arm you know we wanted to go straight to this question you know how do you create a multiracial working and middle class coalition. Um, you know, what is the story uh, that allows you to talk to someone who, you know, lost their a black man who lost his job in Gary, Indiana, you know, thirty years ago, and a white, you know, woman who lost her job on the line in a rural part of um, Oklahoma five years ago or three years ago. And what we discovered, um, this was a project with Anat Shankar Osorio, who's a wonderful linguist, and, and Ian Haney Lopez, who's a law professor at Berkeley, the author of Dog Whistle Politics, was that the story about the economy that we tell needs to have a villain, right? You can't actually say this is the economy is like the weather and this is just sort of happening. Um, so we know that, um, you know, the populist story, the progressive story is it's the people who are, you know, wealthy and powerful enough to be setting the rules, right? There's, you know, those those factories didn't just close, right? People, multinational corporations closed them and opened them other places, except for whatever it is. Um, you know, the the Wall Street firms didn't just get bailouts. They needed them because they, they cheated and they, um, uh, and they crashed the economy. But now, particularly, race is so loud in the conversation because of what's happened on the right. And Trump is, um, you know, the manifestation of it. Um, you know, he sort of is play, he played to an audience. I think that was created much earlier mm-hmm. on the right, in the right wing media. Um, Do you think in response to Obama? Of course. Or, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's old, right? I mean, this is Nixon stuff. You know, Johnson talked about yes. this, right? But I think it um, it accelerated and it grew into a, a bigger common sense with the the unhappy uh, happenstance of Fox News becoming powerful and Obama being president for eight years. Um, at you know right after a financial crisis where we didn't do enough to save people's homes and we didn't do enough um, to make sure that someone was held accountable. Um, so 
you race is really loud in the room. And so progressives don't win by ignoring race, which is what we try to do. We try to say, hey, if we can just do an economic populism, you know, white people will be like, yeah, it's the, you know, plutocrats fault, not, you know. Yeah, the- Jesse Jackson, I remember when he was running for president, used to say everybody's the same color when the plant lights go out. Right. And I think that colorblindness narrative is insufficient today because everybody knows that everybody's not the same color, right? I mean, everybody, you know, immigration is a huge flashpoint on it, on on these racial issues. You know, you have Black Lives Matter, totally changed the conversation. And by the way, you know, Trump is, he, he's seized on a, a narrative that is not just an American narrative. Oh, yeah. But a global narrative. So the election in, in Britain, but you overlay that Brexit vote and it looks very much like the Trump vote. That's right. It was, you know, very similar types of people, and in some cases, similar same people, um, using an immigrant scapegoating um, uh, message to get uh, Britons to, you know, to vote for something that would cause them a lot of economic pain, certainly in the short term. Um, but so what we discovered was you have to talk about race, but specifically talk about who is using race to divide us, to divide people who are ultimately in a similar boat, as you know, as Jesse Jackson said. And so what we discovered was you have to call out, and in the Trump era, it's very obvious, you have to call out the fact that we all want the same things, um, but the wealthy and the well-connected and the politicians that they pay for are telling us to point the finger at brown people, at immigrants, at poor people, so that we ignore what they're doing, which is, you know, rigging the rules and lining their own pockets. And only if we come together across racial lines can we, um, you know, build a movement that'll take power back for working people. Let me ask you about that, because you certainly must spend a lot of time with the wealthy and Mm well-connected in the foundation world. Yeah, progressive progressive wealthy, well-connected people, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, which is the minority, yeah. um, And uh, is that a... um, is that a is at the end of the day is that an a, a authentic yeah message and is is it a helpful message in terms of um kind of building actually building a working uh, majority I think so I mean I think you know if there were if there was a pollster here not just someone who's worked with pollsters you know they would say that that message continues you know not the racially inflected one which is something that you know we did but you know they would say that that people of all um, uh, kind of, you know, ideological stripes have a fundamentally populist understanding of the world. That's how Donald Trump was able to, you know, upend the Republican Party with a pretty populist message. That was his, you know, closing argument was was tying racism to, uh, um, you know, um, an indictment of, of, of the global elite. That said, um, when we look at the big issues of our time, it's not all wealthy people, but there are wealthy people whose financial self-interest has driven them to change the economic rules to make that make it harder for us to stop climate change, that make it harder for us to, um, you know, to have avoided the financial crisis, that make it harder for us to fund our, you know, our future. Um, and it's not actually... You know, there are people, there are like actual people that you can name who organize themselves politically, who have an agenda and are winning and are kicking our butts, right? Um, you know, if you look at the the tax package that was passed, I mean, that was a, 
you know, that was a handful of people's, you know, big dream and big vision. And they organized politically to make sure that one party was going to absolutely toe the line, no matter what it did to our fiscal future, no matter what it did to deficits and debt. And, you know, that's political organizing by people. And so should we call that out? Absolutely. And so this is sort of central to the Elizabeth Warren message Hmm. right now. Bernie Sanders as well. Mm -hmm. In fact, he would say, this was the Bernie Sanders message (laughs) (laughs) before anybody else, but uh, in the field, but um, be that as it may, um, do you see that as, as the, the winning message to win the democratic nomination? I think it's incredibly resonant with the democratic, um, party voters. And furthermore, I think it's resonant with swing voters. And I think it's resonant with people who are looking for an economic story to explain, um, you know, what's happened over the past 40 years and to explain why the rich keep getting richer and the costs for everything that we need keep going up. I, I haven't heard some, I haven't heard any pollster look at focus groups and dial tests and say populism isn't a uh, winning economic message. But I guess the question is, uh, why aren't those guys then um, dominating the race? I mean, if... if Well, they are. I mean, if if you... I mean, two things. One, you mean why are Warren and Sanders not dominating the race? Um, And and by the way, do you think that one or the other has to yield? Right. Let's say if you combine them, I mean, I think it's fascinating, right? I mean, you know, David, the, the big reason why that we used to talk about structurally that message not being the message of the Democratic Party was that the money wasn't there, right? You can't say, I'm going to you know, not have any fundraisers with rich people and fund a competitive campaign. But, you know, Warren and Sanders have each been, you know, putting up enormous numbers of grassroots donations. Um, and that's a sea change in yeah, how no, the Democratic is. Party is going to organize itself. Um, so I think between the two of them, you've got, you know, $50 million a quarter of you know, average, whatever, $20, mm-hmm. $10 donation saying, yes. yes, this is what I want the Democratic Party to be. So I think that, that actually, I, that, that is, that is from their standpoint, both good and bad, because both of them will have resources to go on in this race. Mm-hmm. In right. a sense, the Neither competition is, for the yeah. same, essentially the populist left yeah. is going to continue. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, I, why is it that Joe Biden is still, you know, leading nationally with without too much of a populist message although i think the biden campaign would say you know we're the original kind of i think everybody everybody recognizes yes and everybody recognizes that um the special interest influence over Mm -hmm. policy making is pretty pernicious i mean that's been a long-term story yeah, that and was John Edwards' message. Yes, yes, one of one, yes, one of your uh, one, one of, of yours. yours. Yes, one of mine as well. We we would cheat you and our uh, and our friends out here listening mm-hmm. if I didn't just close out your your personal story. Sure. Uh, so you went to Yale. Yes, uh, that's where I went for undergrad. Yeah. And you uh, and you took a a a, a, a time in uh, Europe teaching, right? Yes. Teaching a little English. less than a year. Yeah, teaching yeah. English. And then you went to law school. And then I went to Demos. Um, oh, then you went uh, to Demos. Yeah, yeah, I managed to get an entry-level job at Demos. Um, 
Uh, I was swimming in credit card debt, personally, and student debt, um, and I found an organization that at that point was two years old um, that had an economic program that was making its first hire, other than the director, Tamara Drought, and the big issue they wanted to work on was the issue of debt and why it was that, you know, the credit card companies were, uh, you know, abusing customers and why it was that credit card debt had tripled over the course of the 1990s. And I just was like, this is a fascinating um, opportunity. And I was hired in an entry level position. Um, you did, we, we should, we should point out, you did take a bit of a, uh, a turn in Hollywood. <laughs> yes. I was trying there for to become like, a, because yes, you, you, you come from a family with a very artistic. Yeah. Band. Yeah. That's right. My dad, um, you know, was a graphic designer and photographer. Um, my brother is a dancer and I was a theater nerd all growing up. And so I did have this, you know, should I, you know, the West Wing had been on during college, right? I was like, oh, man, you know, what if I could shape the way Americans think and are kinder, you know, get them to be kinder to each other the way Norman Lear did? You know, what if I could be like the black woman Norman Lear? And what happened um, with that? <laughs> Let's see. It was right after the recession of 2001. I spent six or maybe nine months in Hollywood. I could barely get arrested. I got like an assistant to an assistant job. And um, and also, you know, I just the pull of of directly trying to make the country better. You want to be a character real. in the West Wing, not the person who writes. <laughs> Good point. Good right, point. Writes the West Wing. So it, when, when you were working on these issues of yeah. debt, did you come into contact with Elizabeth Warren? Yeah. Because she was... You know, that obviously has yep. been her specialty for yep. decades and decades. Yeah, that's that's how we met. Um, I met Elizabeth Warren in 2003. We at Demos issued a report on the growth of credit card debt called Borrowing to Make Ends Meet, which was making the argument for the first time, um, you know, in economic policy circles that we were, you know, facing a, a, an unsustainable crisis of, of borrowing to, to, to deal with economic inequality and security. It came out the same week that the two-income trap came yes, out, which was her book. Which is about. her seminal book. Yeah. And so we were in all the same press, right? They were talking about, you know, this think tank report and this book. And so, you know, we uh, called her up and she was a Harvard law professor and I read everything she'd written. And I was like, this woman is, is fascinating and brilliant. Um, the then... Uh, head of Demos, Miles Rappaport, um, ended up asking her to join the board. And she said, you know, um, my daughter, her co-author on the Two Income yes, Trap, actually yeah. is someone who knows a lot about running organizations. That's what she does. She's an organizational consultant. And uh, and she would be great for the board. That was in 2005, maybe mm -hmm. 2006. Um, and uh, Elizabeth Warren, professor then, and Demos were in the trenches together trying to fight the bankruptcy bill of 2005 that credit card companies wrote to make it harder for people. And to... you were probably thinking to yourself then, you know, someday she's going to be president of the United <laughs> States. Um, you know, I did think she has an uncanny political talent, and she's right. Um, and she, like many of us consumer advocates, you know, saw the financial crash coming. Um one of the it's it's the defining um, fight of my of my career, which was trying basically to stop the financial crisis from happening, trying to stop the subprime mortgage crisis back when it was just basically affecting black and brown neighborhoods. Um, and that combination of greed and discrimination created something that couldn't be contained or wouldn't be contained. Mm -hmm. um, and. Um, so I, I, I've always been a huge, I've been a huge Elizabeth Warren fan. I think she has an incredible amount of warmth and integrity. Um, 
Uh, and have you formally endorsed? I have not formally endorsed her, but I think a I lot will. of people will hear that and they'll take it as a hint. <laughs> I think I will soon. Yeah, you, um, and you did work in. You mentioned earlier you worked in John Edwards' campaign in, in two thousand eight. Really, because in two thousand four he had relied on Demos's work on debt. You know, the predatory mm-hmm. lenders and the payday lenders were part of the One America speech, the original yeah. One America speech. He got it. He got it in a way that was. And in the middle, you did go to law school. Yes, and I did. I went to law school. Um, I actually took a year off of law school in order to work uh, doing domestic policy on the Edwards campaign. I went to Berkeley. Um, I never ended up practicing law. I ended up helping write legislation, the Dodd Frank Act. Was it was it helpful? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was. Although I do say, and I did to students at U Chicago who came to my my office hours here on campus, I do say, if you don't want to be a lawyer, probably not worth it to go into debt to go to law school. Yeah, it's no longer kind of you know this is just a great door opening degree. I I think it's too expensive. You know, yeah. I'm still paying off my law student debt. Yeah, you mentioned Dodd Frank. Yeah. Um, how did you feel about the way that that law came out? Oh, man, Dodd-Frank. So um, We're talking about the financial reform yes, of 2010 the, the after reform. the crisis. Exactly. Um, so there were parts of that law that were strong from the beginning and only got stronger. Um, Elizabeth Warren's vision of an agency that would only be focused on, you know, protecting ordinary people. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Yeah, ordinary yeah. people's savings and, you know, stopping the, the abuses. Mm-hmm. It was just a genius idea, and the president... Obama, um, you know, saw the vision right away, I think, and fought to keep it strong. She set it up. Yeah. And she went on to go set it up. That's that's actually something I think people don't kind of pay enough attention to, that she's had an experience, like, standing up an entire government agency from whole cloth. Um, Yeah. That has been wildly successful. She should talk about it. (laughs) She should talk about it. Um, uh, I think Dodd-Frank was the victim of... I'm... I am still shocked that it passed, right? Um, that uh, some of the tougher measures actually got tougher, right? Paul Volcker just passed yes, away. Yes, um, the Volcker rule. Um, that was something that, you know, I played a huge role in trying to, you know, make come into being and stick into the bill and stay. And it stayed. To, li- to limit what banks could do with their own money. Right. Uh, in terms of speculating. Yeah. That's right. Um, it was sort of an idea of not quite Glass-Steagall, but basically saying you shouldn't have banks depositing, using consumer deposits to, to gamble um, and do proprietary mm-hmm. trading. Um, so I think the bill tapped into, it was never really the focus of the big political conversation. Um, I think it tapped into a populist feeling that made it actually hard for moderate Democrats and Republicans to, you know, to fight it openly. Um, So I think that's why it survived. The one lesson for me is that after the bill was passed and signed, that's when the financial industry lobbyists, you know, doubled their efforts. And we who were... To try and shape the implementation. To shape the implementation. They knew that it was all going to be in the regulations Mm -hmm. and that they could outlast us, basically, in terms of advocates. Um, This statistic was true at the time of the bill signing. The... um, I'm sure it's even worse today, but during the fight to pass Dodd-Frank, the anti-reform industry lobbyists spent per day what the pro-reform coalition, Americans for Financial Reform, spent during the entire fight. I mean, we're just completely outgunned, and we are even more so today. Yeah. And 
obviously with an administration with an entirely different bent. An entirely different bent, a desire to, you know, seem like a populist in rallies, but, you know, give the keys over to corporate polluters and corporate cheaters, um, you know, in in the shadows. And it's, it's, there's so much damage that's been done that people are not even paying attention to. You talked about the lack of uh, prosecution of people. Yes. Which, you know, I I obviously hear that a lot. Mm. Uh, Eric Holder and I sat down not long ago. Mm. Um, He makes the argument that he didn't have the tools to Mm -hmm. pursue them. Um, Is that a fair answer or do you think that there's there was other things at play because i do remember discussion about i mean we this all was happening the the president was working to try and save the economy from collapse at the same time as trying to push reforms and it was a delicate balance because you know if the whole if the financial system collapsed Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then the whole I mean, economy goes down. Yeah, I think that, you know, fundamentally, um, you know, I'm not going to try to get in anybody's head about kind of what the motives were. But from what I saw from sitting at tables across from Treasury officials in 2009 and 2010, um, you know, they wanted to preserve the system because the system was collapsing um, and the system might not be OK even after the bailouts. But of course, the system that they wanted to preserve was one um, that had these fundamental imbalances and that people in leadership had made terrible, predatory, irresponsible choices. Um, And I would have personally done things differently. You know, I would have fought harder to stem the foreclosure crisis because even though, you know, sort of clearing the books ended up being good for banks, um, it didn't end up, you know, we, we have a home ownership rate that hasn't recovered and, and black wealth, black home ownership is today what it was before the Fair Housing Act, right? We just lost yeah. the entire civil rights movement's gains yeah. in home ownership. And that happened on the watch of our first black president, which is just so unfair. I will say that I sat in on many, many meetings in which he exhorted his people to come up with answers, mm-hmm. uh, you know, none of which, uh, Proved, and some of which had some some impact. None of which had the impact that I think that uh, that he had hoped for. So you you went back to Demos after law school. You yeah. fought these fights, yeah. and then uh, eventually uh, you were approached about becoming to leading the organization, becoming yeah. president of the organization. Yeah. And you turned it down, not once, not twice, <laughs> not three or four times, five times you turned down this opportunity. I Why? I was curious about yeah. that. Yeah. Um, you know, I am. Um, so my predecessor, Miles Rappaport, wonderful guy, um, former secretary of state of yes. Connecticut, yes, former yes. state uh, legislator, um, you know, had run the organization for at that point, 14, 15 years. Um, I I didn't see myself, right? I mean, you know, this is a white middle-aged guy who had run the organization taking over for another white middle-aged guy who had founded it. Um, I didn't see myself in the leadership. I could think of a million reasons why I it was going to be too big a job for me. Um, uh, this is something that we hear in politics about women all the time. In the end, my colleagues, um, most of them women, uh, ended up convincing me um, to do it. my The woman who hired me originally, Tamara Drought, who at that point was a VP with me, uh, vice president with me, you know, wrote a memo about why I should do it. And um, and I also realized that I just, I loved the organization so much. And I didn't want to, you know, leave it to anybody else's hands. And I knew I could build a team. And I was 33 years old, right? This is a national think tank. Um, 
but I, I felt like my love for it, my understanding of it, my commitment to the mission would prevail. So I finally said yes. And then, of course, the board had to actually, you know, yeah. do a selection process. Yeah. But, um, and, yeah. and tell me of the things that you you did during mm-hmm. you you're no longer the yeah. the president. Well, yeah. first of all, why did you decide to leave that spot? So I was president of Demos for 4 years. Um we nearly doubled in size. Um the organization went from being 75% white uh when I took over. I was the only person of color on the executive team when I became president um to when I left as a majority person of color think tank. Um with a majority of people of color in leadership. I um and you know, we we I think grew just not just in budget and a number of staff and in diversity, but we grew in terms of our prominence and our ability mm-hmm. to really be focused on the big policy solutions. We moved the idea of debt-free college into the center of the public debate. We, you know, won um, nearly a dozen pro-democracy reforms at the state level. We, we, um, you know, we had this analysis that's still there today about the connection between inequality in our democracy and inequality in our economy and how they're on a mutually reinforcing cycle and how race is often the scaffolding where those inequalities are built. Um, I... Loved running an organization and learning and fighting in the trenches. We became more connected to other grass to grassroots organizations, right? You can be a think tank and there's a model of a think tank where you do a research report and you talk to the media about it and that's it. And we had done that for a while. And I really wanted us to be the kind of organization that did that, but then also decided which issues to to research based on listening to grassroots organizations. And, you know, used did research that would be helpful to them in building mm-hmm. power um, and had deep relationships with, you know, grassroots organizations in a state and said to those organizations, you know what, if you have this policy agenda that helps, you know, open up the doors to democracy for working and middle class people and people of color, it'll give you more power to pass the minimum wage hike you want to pass childcare. And so let us help you with this democracy reform. Um, let us do, you know, messaging work with you. Let us, you know, have our litigators um, sue to make sure that the, the polls are open to you. We just really became more of a think tank for the movement. And I found that very satisfying. Right. No, but why'd you leave? Why'd I leave? Yeah. So I left because I'd been there. I'd been at Demos since I was 22. Uh, and I was, you know, when I was 37, I decided it had been quite a, quite a long time. Um, the transformation of the organization into a more race-forward, movement-connected think tank, I felt was was pretty complete, and it was clear kind of, um, you know, what we were doing in the world, and it could attract a leader who had a similar vision, an incredible um, young man named Kay Sabil Rahman, who runs it today. Um, but I also felt like there had been a shift in the political winds so that the big solutions on inequality that we were fighting to make relevant, right? I mean, that was, that sort of was our thing was we were pushing to make big ideas relevant and salient. Um, That had kind of was the thing, right? Everybody was talking about inequality, big, you know, you had Clinton who, who represented the center of the party was the one adopting debt free college from our research, you know, and and it felt like there was some other work that still needed to be done. If I looked over the horizon, it was really not about the economic policy ideas that a lot of people at that point were, were handling well, including Demos, but about this fundamental question of who are we as a Demos? Who are we as a people? Can we have a shared story around race? Can we heal? Can we move forward? Can there be voices in the media that are uniting, that are telling the truth, but still inviting people in? And it felt to me like that was actually work that I 
didn't have time to do when I was, you know, running a, at that point, you know, $13 yeah, was- million dollar a year organization. Um, and, and that I wanted to focus full time on it. I also had a kid, um, but I made the decision to leave before I got pregnant um, yeah. with my son. How's that? How's that? Changed you. Oh, oh God, it's the best. Um, Your son is one now. He's one. Um, he's amazing. Uh, he. It has made me um, more efficient in my time because yeah, I, I, bet, yeah. I, you know, I, it's, it's. I don't want to spend all night, you know, hanging out, chit chatting. I want to get back to him. Um, it's made me ferocious about the future. Um, it's made me. Um, yeah, issues like. Climate, climate change. Climate become yeah. uh, a lot less. I, I remember sitting on a show when I was over at MSNBC and I was on with uh, Joe Scarborough mm. one morning and the president was going to give his State of the Union speech and he said, why is he so focused on climate change? It's only number six in the New York Times. I mean, I'm sorry, in the Wall Street Journal uh-huh. NBC poll. And I was thinking to myself, I want to my grandchildren to hear me say from the grave, well, we could have done something to stop this, but it was only sixth <laughs> in the in the Wall Street Journal. That's right, uh, David. Yeah, that's you know, right. Poll and uh, but it does train the mind. It absolutely does. I was my son was a little over a month when the UN climate report came out in 2018 that basically said we have a dozen years to move, and it was it was devastating. And a couple months after that, I was on Meet the Press, and there was a debate about sort of the Sunrise Movement and the Green New Deal versus Feinstein. There'd been this, you know, video of a confrontation. And I ended up, you know, defending the youth activists with Sunrise and saying, basically, you know, we can't talk about a solution that's too aspirational. It's the planet. And I and I and I choked up a little. And, you know, that is not something you yes. do on Meet the Press. Right. Okay? No, no, this was this was an iconic moment, actually. Yeah. I, and because I, I was thinking about my son. I was yeah. thinking about my son. I was thinking about the fact that, you know, I'd been reading this report saying that there wouldn't be any coral reefs on the planet left in 20 yeah, years. And yeah. 20 years is like the Clinton impeachment. Yeah. 20 years is things that feels it's like yesterday. It's becoming less and less theoretical. All the signs are so uh, profound. We're at a moment of planetary crisis. And that's something that, um, you know, your students here at UChicago, are, you know, are so clear about. And the disgust that they have for people who are not rising to this moment um, it's just it's palpable. It drips off them, and so, you know, we have we've talked about a lot race about race. We haven't talked about generations a lot, but I do think that young people, even young Republicans, are way more progressive on climate yeah. change than their than their elders. Um, young people, as a voting block, as a sort of political worldview, is is really real. You can't have uh-huh. the cascading failures of the financial crisis, the Iraq War, the failure to act it's, on it's, climate it's, change. It, it is you profound. Know. Yeah, these kids grew up in an environment in which things were much less certain. Yeah, and they have an understanding that the world is full of challenges, and they have a role. Uh, to right. play, and I do think that that sort of greater sense of tolerance uh, is, in certain certain ways, they're intolerant of policies right. that that right. they they dislike, but they have a broader worldview that's going to change politics in America over. It can't come soon enough. Over time, um, what about you and politics? You mentioned earlier. Uh, you hinted at something. I mean, oh. do you see yourself at some point uh, running for office? So I have so much respect for people who throw their hat in the ring. It is ugly. You know, as I was saying, you know, I've known Elizabeth Warren for um, 
since I was 23. And I, you know, I care about her. And I think she's a real, I see her as a real human being. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, part of me, like, I don't think this country deserves her. And I think, you know, the way she's been treated, you know, the way everybody, I mean, anyone who's close to a politician. The, the, yeah. The better you do, the harder it becomes. That's right. Um, so I have so much respect for people who do it. Um, Right now, it's clear to me that I have another role to play that is a little bit actually out. I want to be able to um, speak about issues of, of race and who we are as a people in a way that is not partisan, is a way that is inflected with values, but is not partisan. Um, and, you know, I'm only 39, so I've got time to do other things. But right sure. now... Um, Right now, I, I'm not running for office, um, but I respect people who do. I haven't ruled it out. I haven't lived my life like someone who's running for office all yeah. the time. I'll say that, but yes. um, I guess neither did your 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 big boss. But no, um, <laughs> no I, I think we're we're living in different times now. <laughs> but so. um, uh, your book, when is that? That will be coming out after the election. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, and it's it doesn't have a title yet, but it's about the way that racism leads to bad outcomes for all of us um, and the cost of racism to us all. You've talked about, uh, just in, in closing here, uh, about politics is often about storytelling. Yeah. And you obviously see the world in that way. Mm. What is the story that you hope to write, that you hope we can write together mm. uh, in the years to come? Because right now the story feels very hard, yeah. very, you know, we are not, we are a divided country, yeah. we're on the jagged edge of race, yeah. uh, class, um, and and yet you, you know, you present as a very hopeful person. I am, I am. You know, I, I don't think you can be the descendant of people who were enslaved and not be hopeful on some fundamental level. It'd be a betrayal of them. That's all they had, and they won, you know. Um I uh, I think we can write a story where the most diverse generation in American history, right, the young people today, um, reignite the sense of what's possible in America because they take a land of ancestral strangers and reveal common humanity, that they fight for each other and fight for their planet, Right. I mean, this is, you know, fundamental, a fundamental fight that will be the defining fight of, of today's young generation. Um, and that in so doing, they make democracy real. Right. They make something that is a big experiment. Right. The idea that yeah. a multiracial democracy that people, you know, with ties to every community on the globe can sit in a commons and decide together what their future should be. Um, I think this generation is going to be the one to make it real, to make America live up to her ideals in a way that is open to the world and that helps save the world for real. I mean, that's the mythology we were raised with. Um, and I, I, I do believe this generation is going to do it. Well, that's why I've been so excited to have you at the Institute of Politics uh, impacting on these young people. And I'm sure as I feel about myself being impacted by these young mm -hmm. people who allow you to go home hopeful, uh, even in times that aren't particularly uh, aren't particularly hopeful. Absolutely. So, Heather McGee, thank you. Thank you, Look David. Look forward to the book. Look thank forward you. to see what you do next. Thank you, David. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. 
brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.